They work better when you turn them on. Good evening. We're going to take some time to read a text from Numbers 21. And uh, we'll also juxtapose that with a passage from the Gospel of John. Uh, We've been, as a church, going through uh, a series on the life of Moses. And that's going to come to an end tonight as we see that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of all of Israel's hopes and longings. So let's go ahead and look at Numbers 21 together. From Mount Hor, they set up by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you tonight for the gift of your son. Lord, we pray that your your spirit would be present among us as we reflect on Jesus on his entering into our pain and our suffering as he went to the cross on our behalf. Father, help us to see him there, to behold him there, to recognize the seriousness of our sin, but even more than that, God, to recognize the greatness of your love. We we pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, when I was thinking about this text, uh, there was a song that came into my head. And the fact that this song came into my head made me laugh because there was a time when I actually listened to music and I enjoyed listening to music of my choosing. And I, I, it, was, it, was, it was a part of, of my identity, part of who I was. I listened to cool music, that was, that was me. And then I had children. And now I listen to Frozen over and over and over again. Well, the song that that came into my head, again, as I was reading this text, was not actually surprisingly from Frozen. It was instead from Daniel Tiger. Um, 
And if you have not yet had the privilege of getting to watch Daniel Tiger, uh, just so you know, it is a cartoon spinoff of Mr. Rogers. And the lyrics of this particular song are as follows. You can change your hair or what you wear, but no matter what you do, you're still you. Well, in the Daniel Tiger universe, that is seen as a good thing. And in many senses, it is. It is a positive, helpful thing, the fact that regardless of what you're wearing, there's something about you that carries on. But for us adults, or anyone who has attempted to change their lives primarily by changing their circumstances, this song may actually be a painful reminder of a hard lesson. Or that you can change your hair or what you wear, you can change your job or where you live, you can change your spouse or who you love, but if you haven't addressed the deeper issues of your heart, no matter what you do, you'll inevitably see history repeat itself, patterns reoccur, difficulties follow you because at the end of the day, you're still you. But the hope of the gospel, the hope that we begin to see here on Good Friday, is the hope of healing and the hope of new life. So I'd like for us tonight to spend some time in these two passages, in Numbers 21 and John 3. And we're going to focus primarily on the narrative of Numbers 21, which presents us, I think, with three movements. There we see a sickness, a judgment, and a healing. So let's begin tonight by looking first at the sickness. And we see this laid out for us in verses 4 through 5. I'm going to read those one more time. From Mount Hor they set out, by the way, to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in this wilderness? There's no food and no water and we loathe this worthless food. Now, in, in this passage, the people of Israel are coming off of a victory. God has just led them, led them into battle where they defeated their enemies because of the power of God. In this passage, we should expect the people to be celebrating their, their recent victory, to be praising God for His work as their defender and protector. Instead, we first read that they have grown impatient, and their impatience causes them to grumble against God and Moses. Now, as I mentioned before, we've been, a we've been in a series on the life of Moses, and we have seen a few passages like this. In fact, we, uh, we looked specifically at Exodus 17 as well as Numbers 20, so the previous chapter to this one tonight. And in both of those texts, the Israelites come into a new place where they do not have water. Then they complain and they level accusations against God and Moses, claiming that they only brought the people out of Egypt to kill them in the wilderness. The same general thing is happening here. But there is something that sets this scene apart. See, in this text, in Numbers 21, they don't come into a new situation in which they don't have a provision that they had previously. No, they're just tired of the wilderness. Right? There's no catalyst for their complaint. They're trudging along and they're sick of it. They're mad. And we see in this text that they're just kind of saying stuff. 
right? They, they first say, there is no food and no water. And then they go on to say, and we hate this food. And it's like, well, wait a second. Like, which one is it? Is there no food or no water? Or do you dislike the food that God has given you? Because those are not the same thing. And what I think this scene actually reveals is that the real problem is not a lack of provision. The real problem is an inner sickness, a soul discontent. See, there was something deep within their hearts that was off. But it's not just their hearts, it's ours as well. A sickness, a discontent that causes us to grumble and complain. And the sad truth is that that discontent will always be there if we try to locate our hope and our happiness in something other than God. And friends, this problem goes all the way back to the garden. In the story of Genesis 1, we're told that when God first created humans, he placed them in the Garden of Eden. And when we read Garden of Eden, we can easily insert paradise. God created humans and he put them in paradise. And God told our first parents, you can have anything you want, which means, again, anything in paradise. It was all good stuff. There was one prohibition. I have anything you want except this one thing. But instead of trusting God and being content with him and his provision, they tried to change their circumstances on their own. They looked around again at paradise and said, if only I could have this, then I'd be happy. Forgetting that our ultimate happiness is in God alone. See, they had everything they needed, again, because they were in paradise. But even more importantly, they had God himself. But they forgot that reality. They forgot the reality that Augustine of Hippo reminds us of, that God has made us for himself and that our hearts are restless until they rest in him. See, Adam and Eve strove to change their circumstances on their own according to their own will. And we have been striving ever since, adhering to the lie that if only I could just, if only I could just get a bigger house, if only I could just get out of state, if only I could just have a kid or have another kid, if only I could just look young forever, if only I could just get a job, if only I could just get a different job, if only I could find the right spouse, if only I could get a different spouse, if only I could get out of this wilderness, then I'd be happy. But friends, it's not true. I was reading something uh, the other day about Michael Phelps. Um, Phelps is an Olympic swimmer, a former Olympic swimmer, and I'm not a swimmer, but it's my understanding that Michael Phelps was a good one. Um, and I say that because he was the most successful and decorated Olympian of all time, with a total of 28 medals. Um, he also holds the all-time records for uh, Olympic gold medals, gold medals in particular, uh, Olympic gold medals in individual events, and Olympic medals period in individual events. So he's a good swimmer. In an interview, he said, I was always hungry, hungry, and I wanted more. Well, he managed to get more than anyone else in history in his field. And how did he feel after all of his achievements? 
He said after every single Olympics, he would fall into a deep depression. The worst one coming after the 2012 Olympics where Phelps said, I didn't want to be in the sport anymore. I didn't want to be alive anymore. My friends, this is a well-documented phenomenon. It's almost a cliche at this point where we know people who have reached the very top end up miserable, end up feeling empty. We see story after story like this. This reality prompted a well-known columnist back in the 90s who had watched celebrities, various celebrities' careers take off to write an article entitled, quote, I pity celebrities. And in it, she explains, if they were miserable before becoming famous, they were twice as miserable now. Because the giant thing they were striving for, that fame thing that was going to make everything okay, that was going to make their lives bearable, that was going to provide them with personal fulfillment and happiness had happened and nothing changed. They were still them. You can change your hair or what you wear, but no matter what you do, you're still you. The people of Israel thought, if only I could get out of this wilderness then, to the point where they idealized Egypt, at the land of their captivity, the land where they had been enslaved. But this is the sort of thing that we do when we try to find our joy primarily in our circumstances. So consider for a minute, where are you inclined to think, if only I could If only I could just. What are you looking to for joy and contentment? Where are you placing your hope? There is a sickness within each of us, a sickness that the Swiss theologian Karl Barth refers to as a God sickness that only God himself can heal. Your circumstances may change, but if you haven't addressed your God sickness, you'll be stuck in a perpetual state of discontent. All right, so that is the sickness. Now let's look at the judgment. God responds to the people's complaints in verse 6, and there we read, Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of, so that many people of Israel died. There we go. Now, just a quick word, this verse is not meant to be used as a tool, uh, a tool of parents, of picky eaters, right? You are not supposed to go home tonight and say, well, remember what happened to the people of Israel when they complained about their food. That's not, not what this is meant for. But you might be wondering, what is this? What is happening? Right? And reading this story thousands of years removed in a completely different part of the world God's judgment to us might feel arbitrary. It might feel disproportionate. It might look as though God is just mad and he's looking around for something unpleasant. There's snakes in the desert, snakes, fiery ones, enjoy. Friends, that's, that's not, again, what's happening here. As we established a few minutes ago, for generations, the people of Israel had been slaves in Egypt. And so they would have been well versed in Egyptian symbolism. And in Egypt, snakes were well-known symbols of power and sovereignty. Pharaoh himself was represented by snakes, and he had a representation of a sacred serpent prominently placed on his crown. So by sending snakes, God is essentially asking the people, is this really what you want? Is this really what you want to go back to? 
Pharaoh who subjected you to hard labor, who tried multiple times to exterminate you. Think about what you're asking for. But even more profoundly than Pharaoh, I mentioned the fact that the seeds of discontent were present in the Garden of Eden. Well, friends, who was it that sowed those seeds? It was Satan himself who appeared in the form of a serpent. So in addition to representing Pharaoh, these fiery serpents who, just as a note, weren't literally on fire, but whose bites made it feel as though there was a fire inside, they represented the serpent in the garden. The one who first fed us the lie that there is such a thing as happiness apart from God. Friends, there is no such thing. If we cut ourselves off from the source of life, the only thing that we have left is death. But thankfully for the people of Israel and for us, judgment doesn't get the last word. The judgment eventually gives way to the healing. See, the people, after being sent these fiery serpents, they quickly recognized the error of their ways and they repented. So in verse 7 we read, And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And God heard their prayer and provided a way for them to be saved. And we read about that in the next verse. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. And that's exactly what happened. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Now, I can imagine that some in the wilderness that day might have seen all of this and thought to themselves, I am grateful for this healing, but this is a peculiar way of going about it. Why take an image of the thing that is killing me, an image of the thing that represents sin and evil, and use that as an instrument for healing? Why is that the thing that's going to save me? Well, our text in Numbers doesn't really provide an answer. In fact, we don't really see an answer given at all throughout the Old Testament. It's not until we get to Jesus that we understand why. In John chapter 3, Jesus has a famous conversation with a Pharisee named Nicodemus, where he says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. The serpent lifted up in the wilderness was a foreshadowing of Jesus being lifted up on the cross. The verb translated lifted up here in verse 14 is hupsao, and it's seen four other times in John's gospel, and in all of those references, It's pointing to Jesus' crucifixion. See, the reason the symbol of sin back in Numbers 21 could provide salvation is because it pointed forward to the work of Jesus, who though he knew no sin, became sin for us, so that we in him might become the righteousness of God. Which is absolutely incredible if you think about it. See, in the garden, we chose the serpent. 
And we have been choosing the path that leads to discontentment ever since. We rejected God, knowing that this is what leads to death. But instead of leaving us in that choice, Jesus went to the cross where he would die for us so that we could receive new life. I mean, what an amazing sacrifice. Now, when we hear stories of sacrifice here and, and just other places, other stories in our culture, I think we inevitably end up asking the question, why? Why go through that? Why take on that pain? Why put yourself in danger? Why do this? Well, Jesus answers that question in one of the most often quoted verses in the Bible. In the very same passage, Jesus says in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. See, despite the fact that we chose death, God wants to give us eternal life with him. Why? Love. That is his answer, love. And it's a love that cannot be called into question because of how much it cost for him to demonstrate it. There's an episode in the show The Office where Michael Scott gets philosophical, as he often does, not so much. But he ends up saying something interesting, at least, about the nature of gifts. He says, presents are the best way to show someone how much you care. It's like a tangible thing that you can point to and say, hey man, I love you this many dollars worth. Now, Scott's application of that principle was ridiculous because that show is ridiculous. And we don't want to think of this idea primarily in materialistic terms. However, there is some truth in that statement. There is something in us when we hear a declaration of love. We don't just want words, we want a demonstration. And the more costly the demonstration, the more meaningful the declaration. Well, friends, there is no greater demonstration of love than what we see on Good Friday. As God's word declares, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So tonight, are you questioning God's love for you? Are you questioning whether or not he really knows you? Whether or not he really cares? Well, friends, then look to the cross. Look to the place of healing. Look to the one who was lifted up for you. He saves us from sin, from death. He saves us from ourselves. Jesus loves you more than you can possibly comprehend. And that is the takeaway from this event. That is the takeaway from Good Friday. We don't question his love because he has shown it to us. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, tonight, I ask that by your spirit, you would help us to look to Jesus so that we might receive healing. Help us to see the extent 
of his love, a love that is so clearly seen on the cross. Father, help us to place our hope, our trust in Jesus and in his love. Father, forgive us for our many attempts to find meaning and joy and contentment apart from you. Lord, help us to see that those attempts are all in vain. But God, we thank you for giving us a way to to find true joy and healing in you. Help us to trust you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.